welcome to Unfrozen. I'm Dan Safarik. And I'm Greg Lindsay. And this is a special holiday episode, or perhaps a self-indulgent episode on my part, um, devoted to a piece that I recently co-wrote for Bloomberg City Lab on the rise of dark stores, the dark side of 15-minute delivery. Um, this is a piece that I wrote with my buddy Lev Kushner, who's here to join us. We'll have him out in just a second. But for those of you who do not read Bloomberg or have access to the paywall, uh, we looked into, we started looking into last summer, the, you know, the rise of all of these uh, brand new delivery giants. So not Uber Eats and DoorDash, although they're still there, but like these new companies coming out of Europe, like Gorillas and Getter and Joker and GoPuff out of Philly and others that were promising delivery in under 15 minutes or less. And we started thinking through like the implications of what this meant for cities where more and more retail was dematerializing off high streets uh, behind an app on your phone. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into it in a little bit here, but like basically this sort of this whole new form of urbanization, urbanism that was happening here, where instead of retail storefronts, you had these increasingly sophisticated or or stripped down micro warehouses that were appearing in storefronts. And so Lev and I decided to delve into, I think, some of the implications of this, what it meant. And uh, we were very, very pleasantly surprised by the results, which we'll discuss in a second. So first, it's my pleasure to introduce here out on the virtual stage, Lev Kushner, who's co-founder of Department of Here in San Francisco, a sort of city branding economic development agency. Lev can probably explain it better than I can, but, but welcome, Lev. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So I guess the way of kicking us off here, and we'll sort of go around and Dan jump in with questions and things. But but Lev, you and I haven't had a proper chance to debrief since that was published on. I think it was on December seventh. I remember it was Pearl Harbor Day, so it's been a few weeks. And <laughs> I was very pleasantly surprised by the reactions we got. I want to hear your thoughts though, because you know we saw, of course, you know the it's very bracing to see the Bloomberg Media Empire blasted out over and over again across its social channels. I've never ex- quite experienced that, but it got a really sort of warm reception, I thought. But but yeah, Lev, who did you hear from? What did you think? Well, the funny thing was, uh, you know, as I dutifully sent it out to friends and family, including my mother-in-law who lives in New York, and she's like, well, that's so funny. I was just listening this morning to uh, Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer announce her plans for how to deal with this issue. And I kind of paused and I was like, oh, I think we just hit the timing right. And that was kind of, in my experience, what made it explode. I got enormously uh, the traction. I mean, just the feedback that we got was insane. Just comments from all sorts of corners, both pro and against. And I feel like it the piece on some level just speaks to the weirdness and surreality of, of the pandemic and its effects on cities and people being farther and farther apart. And I feel like it kind of touched that nerve pretty effectively. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It, uh, you know, in addition to the Brian Lair show and Gail Brewer, and of course, you know, right. uh, some background there, Gail Brewer, you know, the Manhattan Borough president had previously sent, which we quoted in our piece, this really angry letter uh, accusing these companies of violating their zoning, among other things, which I thought was really interesting because, of course, like an urbanist discourse, we're all supposed to be like against zoning. And here was Gail Brewer saying, you guys are running warehouses out of storefronts. This is totally illegal. And um, and also, you know, the sort of notion that what we what we try to touch upon is like is the fact that this was this was bad, a bad thing for cities, uh, because it was, of course it was going to lead to less street life, it was going to lead to lower vitality, it was actually messing with the economics rhythms of cities. And so, I, I was able the one to diagnose the problem, and then Lev, we threw it to you to sort of like figure out what should we do about it. So, so I guess for those who haven't read the piece, what should we do about this? Like, what what is the problem with this? What, I mean, Gail Brewer is trying to do blunt force. 
uh, you know, trauma by, by basically using zoning as a club. But we were trying to figure out ways that wasn't going to be about like, how do we stick a finger in the dike forever? And I'm curious, like your thoughts on what we proposed and if you heard any, heard anything from anybody about other, you know, other mechanisms or whether, whether what we had was a set of good ideas. Yeah. I mean, I uh, cast my memory back now, a month feels like a year, but the piece, you know, essentially one of the things we talked about was kind of not being anti this, right? Like I, I have my issues with the last minute stuff, but it, it it certainly feels like it's coming in one way or another. And how can we take advantage of the chaos that surrounds this and just make people aware of the implications? And some of the things we proposed was, you know, uh, simplifying the regulations around retail so that you know, what we said, uh, what's the phrase, a million flowers can bloom, right? Is there's all this creativity and there's all these open storefronts and there's still the demand for retail out there. So if we can simplify things for sidewalk dining and sidewalk retail and all this other stuff, that could be a benefit. And we also talked about um, kind of using the increased demand and strain this is going to put on existing transportation networks in order to possibly fund changes to that infrastructure that's kind of been discussed for a while now. So if all of these delivery people are going to be using scooters and electric bikes, well, we certainly could potentially tax them or find funds elsewhere in order to expand those transportation networks so everybody can use a bike. Because a bike lane doesn't know if you're a granny out for a Sunday ride or a kid or a delivery person. Um, That one in particular, I got a lot of positive feedback from. Uh, I, that may just be because I'm plugged into transportation planner world, uh, but a lot of people were excited about that idea. Uh, some of the other stuff we talked about, and this is kind of one of my stalking horses, is uh, you know I think it's time to just either kill zoning or start thinking about it in a whole new way because it's this is certainly busting through the categories that have existed and have been fuzzy for a while now, and now it's making it clear that these categories are toast. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, and also not just those, not just the the division between categories, but it's part of that ongoing shift post pandemic uh, of the fact that you know if you think of like the four quadrants of commercialish real estate or real estate of like office, industrial, retail, and then residential, is that you know all of them have mixed up and completely blurred together. And the Wall Street Journal recently had a piece after ours uh, quoting you know, some industry veteran that like he never thought he'd see the day where industrial real estate would be worth more than office, but here it is. And that's exactly like part of a symptom of this. Like these companies are like desperately trying to get as much, you know, and by industrial, we mean, you know, warehousing, delivery, micro-fulfillment stuff, not like manufacturing, but like desperate to get as close to people as possible for that. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think it's, I, I think it's really interesting. And your point about transportation, Twitter and the feedback, the thing that was most gratifying for me about the reaction of this piece is that people seem to get way earlier uh, that this at scale will ultimately be destructive to cities, even though it prizes individual convenience. And that was not really apparent about Uber and ride hailing, you know, seven or eight years ago. I mean, I was I was a lonely voice in the wilderness in 2015, arguing that like Uber was not going was not going to be limit its impacts to taxis, which it has decimated. I think we can sort of see that post COVID, but also was going to like you know cause it was going to be a parasite on on public transit. And you know, they spent years through public policy uh, people lobbying otherwise, you know, arguing that they could be friends to transit, and sort of the data sort of borne out that's not really the case. And so it's really interesting to see this time. People are not going to get fooled again. Like there's a real recognition like, oh, we need to regulate this early and understand the impacts versus like, no, no, let's give them time. Maybe it'll be good for local retail. Like no one seems to be falling into that. No, but I think it's also that's also because, you know, this is a lot less technical of a field like transportation. People's eyes glaze over on the most part. Uh, But, 
on this one, I think people are really aware that like, oh, they know they have direct personal positive experiences uh, with, um, you know, shopping on retail high streets and walking sidewalks. And that's something I think people intuitively greatly value urban life. So one of the things that I thought was interesting about this was that it's it's happening at this at this time where we were reconsidering both the concepts of are we going to have to be shut down in our homes forever and have everything delivered versus are we going to reopen the streets back to pedestrians? And it was interesting that those things are happening at the same time. Yeah. And you know, there's an you guys have alluded to this already. Maybe there's a way that these two things can actually play together. Um, it could just be that you know all forms of traditional retail, uh, street facing retail are, are at some kind of, um, are at some kind of risk. Uh, you know, whether that's walk by traffic is not what it's go, not, you know, what it was built for. Right. Um, or, or that, um, you know, at the same time, you know, we don't want to completely give our streets over to, um, delivery vehicles. So it'd be interesting to see, are we going to see a street that's full of, uh, street frontage, uh, you know, that's reclaimed for restaurants. And then between those, uh, those pens that are sticking out into the, into the road, you know, delivery vehicles, uh, possibly two wheeled vehicles. Well, there's something to that. I mean, uh, so before we get into, I think one of the central conceits of the piece that people really enjoyed, which was, you know, the 15 minute city, what it actually entails. But to your point there, like, you know, uh, Matt Newberg, who writes this great newsletter, Hungry, which gave us, gave me in particular, a lot of inspiration for this because he covers it very granularly. And I think most people still don't understand the scale and speed at which this entire little corner of the industry is growing, you know, huge valuations, IPOs being planned, et cetera. But, uh, but, you know, he was highlighting, like, there's already new concepts stands exactly your point where uh, C3 restaurants, which is a holding company backed by Sam Nazarian, the hotelier, uh, uh, SBE, like, you know, chain of hotels, boutique right. hotels in Hollywood and South Beach. Um, he's got a big player in this and they're putting out all sorts of new concepts where exactly you actually have, uh, you know, a, an actual sort of restaurant front in a restaurant in the front, I think you know, four walls, a four wall facing restaurant. I, I forget exactly the technical term. And then you're running several, you know, so-called ghost kitchens out of the back using the actual kitchen capacity and increasing utilization. Huh. So yeah, I mean, there are, you're, you're running hybrid concepts in like six different directions at once out of some of these. So well, it's, it's so, almost like an ADR in the, in the backyard, uh, you know, yeah. in the back alley. Uh, yeah, to some extent, and like I certainly, you know, it's and we can get into like the various, uh, you know, ranges of this. I did a I did a panel at Commotion. I think we talked about this earlier that had some of the players in this, and there's all sorts of different directions they're taking. You know, this hybrid version of you know dining and delivery and retailing and delivery. Um, but but I think one of the central constructs to your point there about like you know what does the street front look like? You know, Lev and I argued in the piece that like yeah, instead of like the 15 minute city, which of course is this Parisian gorgeous vision of, of a life lived closer to home, but it's one in which you are still traveling out into the world on foot or by bicycle and interacting with your community. This is what the States is building instead, which is, and, and to Europe to some extent, which is stuff being brought to you at your house and you are the king of your domain. And, and you know, uh, yeah, basically instead of a 15 minute outward journey, it's a 15 minute or less delivery is what they're promising instead. Like this sort of like, you know, dark inversion of it. Whereas Lev had the great memorable phrase, like, it, it's, you know, it, instead of producing community, it devours community literally. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and the other big takeaway I had there is like just the notion of like, you know, the, also we touched upon like the class inequality of this, of this sort of, you know, the, the sort of widening inequality and everything that COVID has also induced because of this, you know, huge amount of, you know, 
know, wealth that it's created out of thin air with some of the asset valuations. But like, you know, like, you know, there's like Web Web Smith is this guy who writes a newsletter called 2 p.m. that I also read. It's all about, you know, direct to consumer retail. And, you know, I think it was meant to provoke and it worked for me, but put out this notion of like the new class divide is like you're at home working out on your virtual Peloton, you know, uh, trading NFTs on OpenSea and like you control your gorgeous domain. And if, and if you're not that, if you're not above the API, you're below it and you're the one being told where to be in 15 to 60 minutes because all of these services actually have, you know, uh, not gig workers because they need someone to be at their beck and call. So they're actually hiring people full time, but they are, you know, paying them. We can get into the labor issues. Uh, fairly subpar wages as far as many of the workers are concerned. So like there's this widening inequality as well. But but that was but that was one of the key things to me is like the notion of like the 15 minute city dream has like taken this much darker turn with what these services are doing. Well, I think, look, I mean, I, I think what you're flagging in a funny way, especially going back to, you know, your Uber comparison is like this, you know, budding transformation, uh, it, it speaks to people on a really fundamental level because Essentially, on on one level, it's tapping into like the cultural conversation about equity, right, and and gig workers and that whole thing. And on the other side of it, from a social perspective, it's tapping into you know the convenience, but it feels a lot more like more COVID forever, right? Like convenience has always, for the last twenty years at least, been kind of the paragon of capitalism. Is like give people exactly what they want faster and faster and faster. And now as it's reaching, you know, it's platonic ideal of just stay at home in your pajamas and have everything you want delivered to you, that suddenly feels a lot like the pandemic going on forever. And I think that resonated with people. I think they're really like suddenly like that pendulum on some, you know, microscopic level is swinging back to like, oh, other people are okay. I kind of a little bit less convenience might be better. Um, and you and the great the great hallmark of that that is an excellent point and like yeah. you can see that in the swings in the Peloton stock price like if you yeah. watch that whole drama watching their stock crash and rise temporarily as people try to figure out will the pandemic go on forever with Delta yeah. and Omicron and everything else so yeah you're totally right like Peloton tanked when people are like oh I'm ready to leave my house now and now they're being forced back indoors it's recovered somewhat but that is that is exactly you're right that feeling of it right and I feel like one of the barometers of whether the this vibe of the pandemic and this forced separation is going to continue is what is sidewalk life like? Like, cause that is kind of how people experience urban life is they go outside and they're uh, inconvenienced by other people on the sidewalk, but they also love it. Or most people do. Maybe I'm just a huge extrovert, but I I'm desperate to go outside and walk on the sidewalk and see weird people and, and just have my mind, you know, look at all sorts of different things, all that stimulation. Um, and so I think that, you know, the idea that, oh, this may gut our sidewalk life is and keep you inside your house forever is frightening on some level. Well, well Lev, talk to us about this. So I'm in Montreal, Dan's in Chicago, and you're in San Francisco, where from afar, Lev, all I can read about is, let's see, organized gangs or, or you know, or flash mobs storming your retail and, and trashing that. I read about Silicon Valley billionaires going on and on about crime and drugs and how the DA is actually a criminal himself, et cetera. There seems to be an extreme anti-urban anti sentiment that's emanating out of San Francisco, which of course also had like the biggest per capita population loss during the pandemic as well and some of the census figures we just saw. So like, you know, are you an extreme outlier there? I think we we're all outliers compared to the average American, but you know, you, yeah. you're, you're, that seems like a very SF vibe of like, I don't in fact ever want to leave my home again right now. I don't think that's, well, so all of those things are true and I, God knows I've been here for 
This is my second stint in the Bay Area, and this one's for 11 years. And I've got my issues. I don't think it's an anti-urbanist vibe you're getting from here. I think, uh, you know, I think there's San Francisco's, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast. It's like a 12 part podcast, but uh, San Francisco has its own issues. And it's true. Sidewalk life here is really troubling um, on many, many levels. But I don't think what you're seeing is is anti-urban. I think what you're seeing is people want their urban life back. Right. And, you know, the DA, the progressive DA, he's not getting any sort of assistance from the police department. And so he's trying to make massive structural change without buy-in from key actors. And so that just to me, I don't really have a dog in that race, but that just shows how hard it is to make deep structural change. Um, And the mayor even, who is, you know, a centrist, you know, mayor, which in San Francisco feels like a Republican, she's certainly put her foot down and said, I've had enough. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting the way it plays out, but I think it's the same turf. It's the same turf battle, which is people want their sidewalks back. They want to feel like that traditional urban life is still possible and available to them. Cause right now in San Francisco, it doesn't have a good vibe. I keep flashing back to, um, you know, I keep, uh, for the last few minutes, I just keep flashing back to these images of like early 20th century New York, where there were a bunch of you know, it wasn't exactly like the crime and labor situation was great then either. But I keep picturing this, the kid who works at the grocery store and it's like, hey, kid, here's a dime. Go deliver this to Mrs. Johnson, you know, but yet there were still people flowing in and out of the stores. And But that was also an opportunity for, you know, the street mafia to like groom that kid and be, so he could become a gangster later. Hey, kid, here's a package the Godfather, for you. Right? right, the Godfather. But I mean- it, clearly, there there always has been some kind of compromise between public life that is orderly, efficient, maybe a little bit inefficient in a good way, you know, and this idea of serendipity, or you run into people or sure. you meet your neighbors, you know your neighbors. Um, we just, we seem to have lost the, the map on that because maybe it's well, because we've gone through so many, so many very sudden shifts in the last you know, five or six decades where we went to suburban shopping malls in isolation. Then we came back to the cities. Then the pandemic struck and we're like, well, wait a minute. Now we can't, now we can't interact with people. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's hard because, you know, the capitalist system doesn't account well for more abstract things like community and weak ties, you know, and all those things that people want and that developers will create programs for as amenities, but they're not discreetly discrete transactions, right? It's it's right. a lot easier to say, I can deliver you X good in X amount of time. That's a logistical issue, as opposed to I can create community for you. That's a lot fuzzier and harder to quantify. Well, there's also the fact here, I mean, you know, to me, the real, you know, the real, I don't know, there's a lot of real stories within our story, but like one of them, of course, is the fact that like, you know, delivery from local restaurants or even from local stores, right? Like, you know, my grocery store in Queens, when I lived there, of course, would deliver my groceries to me. But the difference, of course, this time is like, is, you know, is the, is the speed scale and also, of course, the amount of venture capital money flowing into this. And, mm-hmm. and Lev, I, I look back on our piece now and I, we totally screwed up like the verb in the first paragraph instead where we we're talking about the streets are being mined. They're not being mined. They're being fracked. Like they're <laughs> dumping toxic VC yeah. money, a slush pile into the earth and just trying to basically shake loose whatever value they can. And this is what all these sort of like, you know, these, these vertically integrated tech startups, like at least the last decade from Uber onward have been trying to do is like frack the urban landscape, 
whether it's the streets, whether it's the storefronts, and sort of sort of shake loose what they can. And so it's it's that. So it's you know it, when it's when it's local stores doing delivery, it's convenience to local residents. But when you have these giant platforms that are trying to basically pump cash through it, and then you know either they you know either like fracking, they probably will end up doing capital destruction, and there will be a big burst in in temporary productivity, and then they sort of collapse under their own flawed business models, as like a lot of the U.S. fracking industry. Does. I, I it's funny. I mean. I think it's an interesting analogy. I take a less grim view of corporations. And I think a big part of this to me is, and in the same way it is in fracking, in the in the actual fracking, is the gov- government is just not doing a good job of anticipating the level and 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 scope of change that's going to come from new technologies, right? They're not able to react fast enough to regulate it with enough anticipation. And you see that from fracking to things like this, right? Which are just starting to play out. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately that's the role government should be playing. And, and I should clarify for listeners, like I'm a recovering bureaucrat. I work, you know, for the city of New York and the city of San Francisco. So I, I have some experience and understanding of why it's so hard to, to uh, turn things around or start regulating quickly, but they're not able to do it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, certainly that, and that, and that's. I say that there's a whole other angle on this which we can pivot to. We, we can discuss capitalism all day long, but uh, well, well, I guess we are. My next question then is, or thought on this is, is one of the issues you flagged in our piece, Lev, which I really enjoyed, is the fact that like there is a fundamental crime here where we assume that every street level use of a building should probably be retail, right? Like, like yeah. we we sort of ended up at this dead end where like no one actually knows how to program a street if it doesn't have storefronts, right. despite the e-commerce revolution and despite the fact that there's a lot more diverse uses of our public realm, which again, the 15 minute city vision tries to get at there. Yeah. And, you know, that was beyond scope for us. But, but I don't know, to me, to me, this is a question that I've been interested in for, yeah, five, six, seven years. I wrote a piece for the New Republic back in 2015 on uh, Marcus Westbury, who's an artist who created this program called Renew Newcastle, where there he went into like, you know, the, the Cleveland of Australia, you know, 75 miles outside Sydney, former steel town that fell on hard times and like basically reactivated their dead downtown through using all sorts of like legal sleight of hand instead of like signing leases to get artists and local entrepreneurs and actually just got people practicing things in public that brought back street life. And then, you know, the economy sort of restarted itself, but you know, but it wasn't about signing leases with big chains. It was about like, I mean, I literally met a stonemason there and you know, all these kind of micro artisans and yeah, we need totally new ways of rethinking about how to program our streetscapes just given the ongoing like retail apocalypse that was already happening before this trend. which is funny, right? Because a stonemason would be industrial use in the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, right? he was chipping away at things. Yeah, and that was the kind of thing that people will pay good money to travel halfway across the world to see, you know, is to see artisans, which yeah. we really don't have in, you know, in, in, to a large extent in certainly in North America anymore in the modern context. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think we- what speaks to, right, is I think mayors and cities around the world are going to be, you know, as, look, I know we're, we're, it's an Omicron moment, but like, as we, God willing, start coming out of this pandemic, I think mayors are going to be desperate to enliven their streetscape. And I think that's, you know, that's what this is all about, right? You're talking about Newcastle, where someone was super creative, and there's ways to do that. Um, but I think it's just, we're stuck with 
tools, you know, we're stuck with, you know, tools that are, however old zoning is, I can't remember from my planning courses, like a hundred years old tool that doesn't really work anymore. And then we're stuck with this discrepancy between the pace of uh, technological change and the slow, slow pace of infrastructure and bricks and mortar change, right? So it's like, what we're seeing ultimately is the, you know, old tools and fast change and slow real estate. And it's creating this like just absolute whirlwind where people are going to, I think there's going to be a lot of chaos and people are going to come up with a lot of really interesting ideas. Uh, hopefully that aren't all just let's maximize convenience, but I think you're going to see governments with open arms for those ideas. And it's going to be really interesting. You might see a lot of regional differences that could be really helpful for differentiating urban lifestyles. I mean, I think one of the more interesting observations that I had, I, I lived in, in China for two years um, and, you know, they have a totally different approach to, to street life there. I mean, pretty much everything is, is out on the ground floor and everybody who has any wherewithal, like doesn't matter how small or, or improperly structured their spaces to suit whatever it is that they want to do. There's all these little, you know, single service sort of artisan shops but also, you know, just practical stuff like that you would go to, you know, Lowe's or something to get, you know, a drill press. It's like, no, you go down the street and there's a drill press guy operating out of his house. So now sometimes, you know, the, the authorities would get an attitude about a certain type of use or a certain type of entrepreneur right. and just clear the street out completely because they have the authority to do that. Um, you know, they get one complaint and then someone who was a political opportunist would just come in and hit the whole thing with a fire hose, but, um, but then they'd be back, you know, in like five minutes, there would be like a whole different set of entrepreneurs because the street life was so central to everything. And this is a country where everybody does everything on pretty much one app, you know, they pretty much do everything on WeChat. Um, so I thought that was an interesting kind of juxtaposition. I mean, maybe it has something to do with population density, but the, the creative use of the street in China was at a level that I had not experienced before. And maybe there's something to be learned from that. Oh, I think there's tons there. I mean, I mean, the, the sort of broader phenomenon, I, I think, is that all of these, this, again, this decade of vertically integrated tech companies have, are all basically borrowing business models from informality in the global south like if i ever get a Lindsay's law that's what i want it to be like basically like every you know every every startup bro is coming out here with something that's already being done in a very low-key way in places like shanghai or jakarta and everywhere else and you know you mentioned the super apps like i've got a whole other separate project right now uh for undp the un development program helping them think through the future of informal transport and i've been interviewing people at the super app companies like ola and uh, Gojek uh, and one out of West Africa called Gozem. And like, this is the model. Like, and, and it's fascinating because what we're seeing stateside with the delivery stuff is just the beginning. I mean, Uber is trying to copycat that model as well. But, but yeah, having, having the ability to book a ride, book delivery, uh, book financing tools, banking and wallets, this is the entire tech industry is sort of swimming in this direction because you can create these complete, you know, complete moats around your app then if you control all this, particularly if you control the wallet. So like that's, I think you're definitely right. Like this, the signs of like where this is headed to some degree is coming from that. And, um, and then the other thing, I, uh, the big takeaway for me in technology left to your point there about like the rate of technological change in this, it's not just the super apps too. Uh, it's occurred to me since writing this piece that like the whole notion of the smart city, we got it completely backward. So like 10 years ago when IBM is doing smarter planet 
and you know, and Cisco is doing their own gloss, and you know, it's 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 you know, all these tech companies. The idea was that you would have like prestige urban projects, and then you would add technology onto it to create even more of a premium. And like that was the entire paradigm from like say Songdo, South Korea, two thousand seven, to Sidewalk Toronto, which of course died amidst community opposition in twenty nineteen, and now tragically that whole company is being broken up, partly because of Dan Dokdroff's. Uh, tragic diagnosis of Lou Gehrig's disease. So there's there's that as well. But my larger point here is like, you know, that whole model of like, oh, we're going to build like, you know, blue chip urbanism and then we're going to put tech on top of it has been completely inverted. Like what these 15 minute delivery dark store companies are doing in the ghost kitchens is they're taking totally marginal real estate and they're using their tech platforms to build like archipelagos of these holdings. And like, this is what Travis Kalanick is doing with Cloud Kitchens, his version where like he's basically signing leases on like really centrally located, but like really like out of the way uh, in, you know, industrial facilities, or you're seeing like this whole crop of company that's creating like drop-in shipping container kitchens into places, yeah. or, or you see it in like Reef, which is one we didn't get into our piece, which I think is arguably the most fascinating. Yeah. Reef technology has got a billion dollars from SoftBank. They bought four and a half thousand parking lots with it. And now they're building like this, this typology, it gets labeled as a shipping container, a food truck. But my friend, Brian Boyer at Michigan Taubman has pointed out that like really they've deconstructed a building. Like they've built this sort of like set of this kit of parts that does the things a building does, but doesn't have to conform to the zoning and permitting of buildings because they can just drop it into parking lots and flexibly redeploy it. Like they've created like deployable architecture that like, you know, Dan, we were riffing about Archigram last time. I mean, this is basically like commercialized Archigram. It's like stuff you can drop and pick up. And like, that's, that's the kind of thing they're doing. So instead of like figuring out like Hudson Yards and these blue chip districts, it's all about like, let's find the most out of the way, totally marginal thing. And we'll figure out a way to like activate it to, you know, to basically maximize it for all it's worth. And that's sort of what they're doing with these rent, you know, these storefronts that are just sitting empty on 14th street in Manhattan and and everywhere else. And look, big picture guys, I think that's a cause for optimism, right? I I think like, you know, government's got to do their best to figure out what the implications of this stuff is going to be. But a certain amount, that type of vitality and chaos is why cities have been what they are for generations and generations. And I think especially it's funny when you um, mentioned uh, the west side of Manhattan, right, with the, that, I can't, can't come up with a name, whatever it was, the uh, giant new project that just opened. Hudson Yards. Hudson Yards, thank you. When, when Hudson Yards opened, uh, my first comment was like, this is a perfect example of how long it takes giant real estate projects because when this was envisioned and I worked at the Bloomberg administration at that time, it was an awesome idea. It was reflective of the times, but it took, however, you know, 12 years to build or whatever. And with social and technological change, by the time it opened, it was so dated. And I think that kind of top-down big project urbanism just doesn't feel right anymore. What does feel right is the kinds of grassroots dynamic urbanism uh, that you're describing, Reef doing, and all those other similar companies. I think, you know, the challenge is just to like think two steps ahead, both from a government side and just from an everyday person side of, wait a minute, what do we actually want out of this chaos? Well, yeah, but it, I mean, that's, that brings it back. Ultimately, it's about power and it's about who has the power to be involved. I mean, I think, you know, what Reef's doing with parking lots, I think we all agree there's higher and better uses for urban parking lots. So that's <laughs> set that one aside. But, but you know, it's about, of course, the gatekeeping that these platforms are doing in terms of the cuts they take from local restaurants when they were doing that. And also, like, as we noted in the piece, like DoorDash is vertically integrating. They're creating their own kitchens. They're creating their own stuff. Like they are, they're moving away from being a middleman of local establishments and just sort of creating this, this you know, entire stack of their own. So in some 
ways are going to end up competing with these local places as well. Yeah. But you know, but I, I think for example, like the one that the one example that really stands out for me, and, and Matt Newberg at Hungary covered this. It just blows my mind. There is a startup now that's backed by like you know Mark Andreessen, and um, it's got this blue chip angels. Katy Perry's an investor in it. It's called Chef. It's <laughs> S H E F, chef, she, chef. Um, but what they're doing is they are they are basically, as Matt pointed out, they are quasi illegally home sourcing meals. You cook it at home as part of their network, and by and at home it's probably like Beverly Hills. It's you know it's it's well appointed kitchens, but creating like healthy ethnic food that they then like dead drop somewhere, and then DoorDash drivers are then sent to the dead drop location, which Matt traced, like, again, like, dead storefronts and things. They pick up those meals and deliver them to the end. And, like, there's, of course, all sorts of, like, health regulations around this, number one. But number two, like, you know, that is happening with blue chip angel investment. When that's done by, like, basically in poor ethnic neighborhoods, that's something to be stamped out. That is a scourge of those yeah. people, and they get criminalized for that. And so if there was a level playing field for that, then I'm, I am. I, I agree with you. Like, I'm sort of, like, I'm open to more informality in cities, absolutely, as long as we keep the health aspects in check, which strikes me as that's where everything goes wrong, right? We don't want to go back to games of New York. But, but it's about it's about equal participation in those platforms, I think, is, is yeah, what I would argue. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if, if funnily, like going back to San Francisco, they had the issue where we've got all these sidewalk sheds up for dining. And it, it's always, you know, San Francisco's got weird weather from one side of the street to the other in 10 minutes to 10 minutes, it's different. Uh, so there isn't great sidewalk dining options in San Francisco, but now there is. And, you know, I don't know if you guys all saw the story that they they passed, you know, they said we're going to start really cracking down on, on making sure all these sidewalk sheds conform to the regulations. And half the restaurants were just like, forget it. We're dropping them. It's too onerous for us. And Mayor Breed had to step in and say, hold on, hold on. We're going to give ourselves another year to think through this. But I think that's you know a perfect example of like finding that right amount of regulation that allows the creativity and the change to happen without there being health, uh, you know, health and safety negative implications. I just now realized what one of those uh, that I saw one of those dead drop locations, and I've now figured out what it is. It's, so it was next Where to was my. It? it was between my. It was but it was in a low rise industrial neighborhood uh, on the north side of Chicago between my veterinarian and a uh like a daycare center so i don't know what that says about the health line regulations involved there was just a million drivers hanging out outside an empty building it was kind of weird there were like barricades up like um you know cones and there was actually like a private security guard on the streets but there were like all kind there was all kinds of mysterious signage about you know uber driver pickup you know but it was clearly that there were there were there were vans going in and you know uber drivers going out and it was actually creating a lot of congestion because people were also dropping off their pets and also dropping off their kids. And I mean, there's a joke in there somewhere about yeah, getting one of those packages is. swapped, right? <laughs> That's Absolutely. fascinating though. I, I love talking about this stuff with like people in commercial real estate because like I'm hoping it just scares the living daylights out of them. And like, and I think they're just waking up to it. I gave a talk this fall to the National Association of Realtors and did a whole riff on this, like early version of this. And they were just excited to hear like, dark stores like it was a phrase like they had heard they were just catching on to this i was like oh you guys have no idea what's coming for you here like you know talk, again talk about disruption i mean no i don't think anyone's going to weep for the tornadoes and, and related to this world but but it raises some really interesting questions about like what happens to all this blue chip real estate and how it gets rendered dead i mean that's what they're trying to do they're basically just trying to turn it commoditize real estate to the nth degree and push it below these app interfaces so yeah and like if that if that's a functioning space you know that they're running commerce out of that then what do you need the rest of this for it's uh it's fascinating
Well, and, and, you know, if you're talking about thinking about bigger real estate owners and, and the, the, the quality of the life on the street, you know, you see what's happening on places like the Magnificent Mile in Michigan Avenue in Chicago, you know, you've got store after store going down, you know, traditional big chain stores that are very popular with suburbanites and locals um, still can't make it uh, on this expensive drag. In fact, um, if biggest reuse I can think of now is the Macy's that was in Water Tower Place, which is for those who aren't from Chicago, it's like, it's a kind of an enclosed suburban mall that's multi-story that was really kind of like a destination retail location when it opened in the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always been pretty popular, even this as retail appetites have changed, but the Macy's that was in there was eight stories and oh. it is gone and it has been replaced with the Dr. Seuss experience, which is basically oh. like a pop-up media, Experience. immersive media thing for, for kids and families. Uh, I, I am fascinated and horrified by the experience thing, which is just like, it seems like the lowest form of like, oh God, how can I bring people back to this space? Yeah, near that is, uh, uh, and just a two blocks away is the Friends experience. Right? Oh my God, I saw the Friends Wait. experience on Manhattan and 23rd Street. 23rd and Lex is the is the Friends experience in New York, I saw this summer. And I've also seen the Office experience, although I forget where that show is. But yeah, we're, we're now just taking like 90s and 2000s television properties and turning them into, into real estate. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I mean- you know, it's nice that it's it's not um, you know gone completely empty or turned into a, a faceless distribution center yet, but all the same, could be worse. It could be you know I don't know like the Dexter experience or <laughs> <laughs> the Saw experience. Yeah, exactly. There's some good franchising here to be had. You, I, I would say you 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 both laughed at that, but like escape rooms are like the number one thing, That's and for true. whatever reason, whatever reason they're doing with the Google mapping layer. Have you ever noticed how like escape rooms tend to get called out on Google Maps? There's some oh, sort of like yes, inception. that is so weird. Yeah, there's some sort of inception to the Google mapping layer, which gets back to the technology side of this, where like the map is increasingly the territory for a lot of this, which I think as too as we've discussed has a lot of detriment for the for the urban realm. But 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 you know I think you know also like we're going to see as a result of this stuff like all sorts of weird new mashups of properties. So like, you know, I think, again, I don't think it was in the piece, but like I talk about it, the project I'm most fascinated about right now is uh, the former Hilltop Mall in Richmond, California. So so Prologis, you know, the biggest industrial real estate REIT in the States, if not the world, uh, acquired this dead mall and it was dead, dead, dead. It sits right off I-80 on the way mm-hmm. out to Sacramento from the Bay. Yeah, Lev probably knows it. And and they've applied. Prologis wants to make it their first mixed-use project in their entire portfolio. And they've applied for a zoning variance so they can do residential, retail, and industrial all on site. And it reminds me of my friend Anthony Townsend's book, Ghost Row, which is all about sort of implications of autonomy. And he actually imagines like a future arch- a real estate archetype where like there's autonomous distribution warehouses below housing. Instead of, instead of the classic, like what is it, beds and sheds, you know, of housing types, you have beds above sheds. Like you can imagine that people will live in housing above distribution centers because you will have 15 minute delivery or less into there. And and I say that as a riff, but like when the first Amazon Fresh grocery store opened in LA last summer as part of that whole thing, the first site was in a 300 unit luxury apartment building. Like that's where they chose to site it. So it, it's gonna be really bizarre to see like, you know, like, yeah, I used to do mixed use where you would take like offices and you'd surround it with retail services and some residential. And now it's like you start with like the residential and like industrial, and then you put other weird uses around it. Like it's a really bizarre time right now when it comes to figuring out like, how do you assemble the components of a city? I mean, I guess if it's not like a heavy industry, you know, noxious 
you know, use of space. Why not? You know, it kind of yeah. reminds me of like a, do you remember the Richard Scarry books with all the, all the busy people running around? Yeah. And like I, as a kid, I would love to have grown up in a place where like all kinds of different colored and shaped delivery vehicles and people were coming in and out of my building. Yeah. I mean, it's that kind of dynamic activity that makes people want to live around other people, right? That's, that's why that's the kind of the exciting stimulation that we like. Well, that, and that takes us back exactly to the whole thing of this as being, and it raises a real question. Like, is this a pandemic era blip, uh, particularly dark stores, ghost kitchens? Like, you know, does that, is that, is there a fallout? Like you know, there's obviously too many competitors in the market. They're all raising billions. They're already buying each other out. It's, it's fascinating. If you watch that as a, as a business space, how quickly it's evolving, uh, does it burn itself out as we go back to real life, whatever that looks like on the far side of this pandemic, if we ever get there? Um, or does it continue that way? Because it is like, you know, th these are the direct outgrowths of a time in Western, if not all society, where people did not want to be around other people, that they wanted to be self-contained. And it became socially acceptable to be as self-contained as possible. And people have moved to places where they are much more self-contained. So Yeah, I mean, I, again, like I just, first of all, I, I don't know that it'll burn out one way or the other, right? but I think it, it it almost doesn't matter. It's it's definitely the most fascinating period in, you know, retail culture that there's been. Um, but I think that, you know, I'll, I'll bank and I'll, I'll put money down that people like to be around other people. Cities have been around a long, long time. And while, you know, it may end up, we may end up in a culture where 15 minute delivery is the paragon. We may end up living in, what was it? Snow crash. Uh, but, uh, I, I do think that there's just going to be a ton of interesting culture and ideas and creativity that pops up out of in this sphere on the, the sidewalk life delivery convenience battle. Um, I'm just fascinated by it. I would say I just have to make it aside there that, you know, despite being like a devoted William Gibson, Bruce Sterling aficionado, it, it's fascinating how Snow Crash has resonance at the moment, not just, you know, yeah, the the incredibly enforced 30 minute delivery or the mafia yeah. will give you your money back, but also, of course, the metaverse there. And then my favorite of that is Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong, the notion of like franchise citizenship, which is a whole other thing coming well, out. I don't remember that. It's been a long time since uh, I read the book. Yeah, it's, it's well worth a read there on some of the ideas that, that Stevens had had floating around at the time there. Huh. Um, but yeah, but no, I say, but it, it'll be, it'll be, it will be interesting to sort of see how they continue to evolve here and about whether, you know, whether that goes. So I, I just as a way of concluding this thought, actually, perhaps uh, Matt Duberg at Hungary has put out his, you know, 2022 predictions. And he's actually arguing that basically the whole 15 minute delivery trend is already burning itself out. That pure speed is both too expensive for those companies. And also like, it's yep. no longer a competitive thing. And he's put up some screenshots uh, from DoorDash, for example, which just launched their offering of that. And, you know, you can get it in eight to 10 minutes, but they're also offering savings if you'll increasingly push it back in the queue. And so it's trending back, I guess, towards, you know, a glacial speed of 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, but there's that. But but one, one more thought on this too. I, I do think, or I wonder how cities will attempt to regulate this or, or, or not in the fact that like we know from studies that the faster you move a package through space and time, the more its carbon intensity and energy intensity increases. Like we've seen this with overnight. So like I have to think about what the like, energy intensity of, of this pace of delivery is, even if you use electric scooters and even if you somehow had a deal for renewables in place there and whether cities will find this increasingly at odds with their, you know, with their carbon goals um, or whether that will be considered an externality, but that, there's always that piece of it to me as well. And yeah. obviously, cognitive dissonance will not will cause people to never make that connection. But but maybe cities will want to regulate it somehow. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Maybe there's a way to to, to do a sort of feed in tariff to all this, which we haven't devised yet. 
That would be interesting. I would be curious, like, to read. Uh, we should probably do some research on this about some other sort of, you know, novel, you know, uh, novel policies there to, you know, real carrots there to increase, you know, slow retail and more things on foot that way. Um, that's actually that's Lev's expertise. That's why I turned to him for that one when we write in this piece. But yeah, I hope there's some other great novel novel policy making. I mean, we, when we were ransacking it for ideas, we looked at Singapore and what some of they've done for for street revitalization and others. But like, there's obviously no silver bullet in terms of like how to think about like how to like jumpstart your street again. Also thinking, yeah, like congestion pricing. What what effect would that have on this? That's a good question. I think you'd have to, it's about how you would define the congestion. I think to Lev's point, the, you know, if you do the new mobility lanes, like like Cornell Tech's proposed for New York or others, they would probably be exempt for that. I'm like, yeah, it probably would drive people more towards those scooters, which would be a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I think what we all agree that like no one wants more delivery trucks, like no one wants internal combustion. So the more you could squeeze that out. Well, great. Well, I think I think it's been a great conversation. Obviously, we're all here like on our post-holiday lull, and you know, all, all you know, Lev and I are both taking time hiding out from our families. So, <laughs> yes, don't keep talking for another two hours, so I don't have to go back. I, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you need this as an excuse, or do you need to like take these ten minutes back for like blissful? Well, let's do this. Time? Let's do this every three hours, though. That sounds perfect. Yeah, great. <laughs> I'll set my timer. Awesome. Well, it was well, great. great. You guys. There's a